0: Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on praising Kane with Mike Nichols' controversial, star studded film Carnal Knowledge from 1971. Hi there, friends. I'm your esteemed host and guide, Liam O'Donnell. And with me, as ever, is my co-host and personal demon, Doug Tilly. Doug, how are you doing right now? What's life like in Canada? Are you raging in the streets?
1: Well, I mean, yes, we are. Uh, though I don't think that Americans realize that that is occurring, and rightfully so. Uh, there's so much going on right now that is negative. And uh, I actually, the response to that negativity is, I think... Pretty positive, I know that might be a controversial thing to say But I do think watching a lot of the collective action happening And before anyone misinterprets what I'm saying I mean the protesters, not the response to the protesters uh, right. I think I think a lot of that is incredibly positive And there's a lot of that happening right now internationally In support of what's going on in the U.S. right now And uh, But also, you know Police violence is not just a U.S. issue; it's certainly a massive one here in Canada, uh, against Indigenous people, against people of color, against Black people, and and it's something that uh, that certain people have been trying to point out for years, and ha- it's fallen on deaf ears. And this is a opportunity to uh, to get that out there to the wider world, and uh, there's a lot of, of really hardworking people who are who are uh, using this opportunity to to amplify that and amplify black voices and amplify people of color who have been trying to say these things for years.
0: I don't want to say that the uh, violent response from police is good because I don't want anyone to be hurt. I don't like seeing uh, protesters and press and anyone else that cops can find out in the street injured. But I will say there's a part of me that doesn't find it completely negative because, as the streets would say, uh, police around the country are straight up showing their ass right now. They are out here with the mask off, revealing what we kind of suspected was true in the first place, which is that they were boiling kettles of rage uh, both racist and not racist uh doesn't really matter if you still think of people as less than you are then you're probably going to attack them and the fact that in america that's uh motivated most often i think by uh white supremacy doesn't limit it just to america there are plenty of places where maybe white supremacy isn't the founding ground on which your nation was founded like it is here in america that still doesn't mean that cops can't lash out and attack people because they think they're above it all they think they're uh better and uh that's becoming really obvious here and all these protests and again not to say that there aren't uh Times when protests maybe get to a place where people feel uncomfortable. Uh, I, I understand if you're a small business owner, looting is definitely probably not something that you are stoked on. Um, you don't want to lose your livelihood, all of that. But there are so many peaceful protests where cops have just unleashed, just just not even tactical man mm-hmm. it's not even tactical right? it's just rage it doesn't even make sense it'd be one thing if you could be like well that was cruel but it was cold and calculated and I understand why they did it nah man they're just being they're just being bullies only they're legally sanctioned murderer bullies you know what I mean like they're they're people who have the legal right to kill you. And they're also bullies. So it's a, it's a horrifying combination. Not that that's what this podcast is about, but uh, it would be irresponsible not to acknowledge that both of us are uh, concerned about this. And I don't know if you've had the chance to. I've gotten to go to some protests that were relatively peaceful, but I have plenty of friends, more friends than I'd like to admit, who now for the first time in their lives can tell me exactly what it feels like to be maced, exactly what it feels like to hold uh, a can of tear gas and throw it back. I mean, granted, I knew people who had been in protests before going back to the Bush administration and the war in Iraq, but uh, people who, who I thought of as not even that political have been out here getting beat by cops. So, uh, you know, it's a crazy time. It might be the lead up to a really positive time. But right now it just feels dark, man. It feels real dark. But that's not what we're here to talk about, Doug. We're here to talk about we are finally getting to. Our second film in our journey through Carol Kane's filmography, 1971's Carnal Knowledge. But before we jump into that, I want to uh, bring attention to uh, some Carol Kane content. Doug, can you tell us about uh, a podcast that she was on recently?
1: She was recently on Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal podcast, which uh, combined with her appearance on... Uh, Mark Maron's podcast would suggest that she's very open to the idea of doing podcasts, uh, Liam. So that suggests that we should be reaching out to Carol Kane to yes. come on this podcast, we, especially now that we've seen. Sorry, I, I I'm only laughing because I'm thinking about the fact that in the two movies that we would have covered uh, up to the end of this episode, she would have had maybe three lines total. Yep. yep. And in this movie, she has no lines. <laughs> we're We're experts on your career, Carol Kane. Oh, that's what you sound like. <laughs>
0: Yo, let's let's let me let me be clear too. Did you listen to that Mark Maron uh, episode?
1: No, not as of yet.
0: In that episode, I thought she was talking about this movie that she had a nude scene, and when this film ended, I thought, how could that? Po-? She she tells a story about having a nude scene that was cut. But she had to do it, and it was her first one, and she felt very nervous, and that Jack Nicholson helped her. And I it thought was. she was talking about in this movie. But when this movie ended, I thought, well, that would have been entirely inappropriate. How could there possibly have been a nude scene in this movie? I
1: mean, I guess- With her like There's yeah. no
0: moment that would have made sense.
1: Well, I mean, there could have been a scene. It, it, it certainly is open to the- Idea that there's more content Between her and the character Played by Art Garfunkel And that it's just been kind of Boiled down to this one sequence That features her So I mean I don't think It's beyond the realm of possibility That said It's hard to imagine A uh, a situation in this movie Where she would be naked Where Jack Nicholson would be there (laughs)
0: Right. That was part of my I mean, maybe she, he was just on set offering her comfort or something. I don't know.
1: That's but weird, I su- too. <laughs> I
0: swear to God she told this story on the Mark Maron podcast. I'm actually going to have to go back and re-listen now, because now that I've seen the movie, I'm like, well, that just doesn't make sense. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, we'll have to check this out. I have not gotten to listen to this episode yet. I listened to the Mark Maron one, but I haven't listened to this. You know what um, she
1: might have been referring to is the last detail, which also has Jack Nicholson in it, and she's in that, and would have been, you know, that that's a couple years after this, so maybe she has more than zero lines in it.
0: I don't know, man, I don't know, but, uh, yeah, uh, hopefully y'all got a chance to check out that episode, and, yeah, I really hope it does mean that, you know, hopefully, further down the line, when we have more of her career to talk about, we could have Carol Kane on to talk about uh, her career, but, um, You know what's kind of fascinating, sorry to, to
1: interrupt, it's just that, This is one of the most interesting and possibly most frustrating parts about doing a chronological podcast. And we're running into it on on our Jackie Chan podcast as well, right? Which is that these performers are new. Uh, I mean, even though Carol Kane had had a lot of theatrical experience, you know, and these are really, uh, you know, interesting movies uh, at a very kind of uh, exceptional time in film history that, that... these are bit parts, right? These are showing up for a couple of scenes or a scene And um, and, knowing, and knowing, we're knowing in the bulk of their career This is an incredibly talented person How could they just be sitting on the sidelines? Don't you see what you have? But that's just the reality of films And you always think, you know, when I watch movies If you see someone come on for a single scene And just, you know, blow everyone else out of the water Or just do something exceptional in that scene uh, And when it, that doesn't end up being a launch point for... A really uh, amazing career afterwards It's just, it just about the luck of the draw sometimes And who sure. sees you at any particular time And, you know, we're seeing a nascent version of Carol Kane Who is, I guess, I think she's around 20 years old At the time this movie came out And just imagining what's going to happen in the next three years And I mean, really, just... In the next couple of episodes of this podcast, her star is going to start rising significantly, but in Carnal Knowledge, a very well-known and regarded film, she is here simply to be a mute for a single scene.
0: Well, I do want to say, though, um, the dynamic you're pointing out becomes more of an issue with different people. So with uh, my suggestion is that Carol Kane and Steve Buscemi are actually better models for this kind of podcast because they're operating in some sense as as guides they're walking us through a history of film right via their career and the fact that she is not heavily featured in this movie is not that important because it's a great movie to right. talk about mm-hmm. and hopefully we'll have an interesting conversation. This was more of an issue when we did our Eric Roberts podcast because <laughs> there were a lot of movies that if Eric didn't have a large role, there was nothing to talk about <laughs> because the movie was not worth discussing. And,
1: and because we <laughs> and were I going think... into a lot of those movies like fairly blind, and and I think justifiably so since many of them were very unknown movies for the most part you know he would show up for seven seconds or one scene or two minutes in a movie and then what are you supposed to talk about <laughs> the rest of this david Dakota? i movie still i watched. still
0: think it i think it also though becomes an issue with um the jackie chan one only because our excitement is mostly because of jackie chan Not to say that the movies he's not featured featured in aren't going to be interesting films, but we're so much more excited about seeing him. Whereas with uh, this particular podcast, I feel a little more patient. Yeah, Mm. I I started it because I love uh, Carol Kane and I love her performances, but she's also done so many interesting films that I don't feel like we're trudging through bad things in order to get to the good. Does that make sense? Like, No, 100%. I'm trusting her as a guide in her career, even though, obviously, when she was picking films, it wasn't based upon our eventual podcast. Uh, I do feel pretty strongly that it's going to be an interesting ride, even when she only shows up for a few minutes.
1: Which I guess I mean this is a prime example of that exact thing. Of course, her career takes off pretty quickly, certainly compared to someone like Jackie Chan. But one of the reasons that we wanted to do a Jackie Chan podcast is that once his career hits, it's like banger after banger. I mean, it's just an amazing movie after amazing movie, and even the ones that aren't amazing at that point have enough Jackie Chan content that that's what we're there for. But you know, that's what it is about these early episodes, Liam. We're we're all we're gearing up for that, and I'm thankful that in the case of Carol Kane, we have a movie like this one to talk about now
0: well let's take a quick break and we're going to come back we're going to dive into this controversial film a film that surely after all these years we will bring no new insight to and that's mike nichols carnal knowledge we'll be right back it came at a time when we were all younger don't press so hard since then we've been through many changes what What are you so
1: afraid of not you.
0: And one thing that put us through those changes was carnal knowledge.
1: First Cindy. Oh, no, not Cindy. How about Sandy? How about Cindy and Sandy?
0: Carnal knowledge. It once shocked America. What kind of man am I?
1: A real man. I wouldn't mind giving her something. man who inspires worship. I like to be smothered by you. More strong. More masculine. You got your heart. Something has to. Domineering or irresistible.
0: Carnal Knowledge. Jack Nicholson, Anne Margaret, Art Garfunkel, and Candace Bergen in Mike Nichols' Carnal Knowledge. Now it's time has come. The concurrent sexual lives of best friends Jonathan and Sandy are presented. Those lives which are affected by the sexual mores of the time and their own temperament, especially in relation to the respective women who end up in their lives. That... Strange description is meant to describe 1971's Carnal Knowledge, directed by Mike Nichols, who you may know from The Graduate, Catch-22, The Birdcage. I'm sorry I'm laughing, y'all. It's just this guy directed Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, so i have to tell you who he is. I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> and uh, written by uh, Jules Pfeiffer, who uh, apparently was a comic book guy. Doug put a bunch of information in our notes. It's too much. Cartoonist, too much to not
1: comic book guy. He's a, he's a cartoonist, <laughs> comic book Though He dude. started Did... as a comic book guy, so I guess you're also right about that.
0: Whatever. Point, point being, he wrote this, John. Uh, it stars Jack Nicholson, Candace Bergen, Art Garfunkel, and Margaret, Reed Moreno, and of course, Carol Kane. All right. <laughs> Stars Carol Kane. <laughs> <laughs> she did it very briefly, y'all. It's fine. Um it's a controversial movie. It's a movie that uh is about sex, sexuality, men, um and and changing ideas and feelings about sex and sexuality and the family uh over time. But uh despite all of those uh, possibly progressive, possibly regressive ideas that make it seem intellectual. Uh, Doug Tilly did watch this film, so he's going to share with us what he thinks, which will not be as good as all that stuff. Doug, what did you think <laughs> of this movie?
1: Oh, I really liked it. Uh, I mean, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> it's a difficult... Because this is one of the first movies to speak this frankly about male sexuality, um, in some ways it feels incredibly dated. And I do think that there is an advantage that the fact that this movie it has this sort of it's set up as a series of vignettes, starting in the nineteen forties, moving right up to the beginning of the nineteen seventies, because it makes it more, um, more allowed to be dated. It allowed it because it takes place in those time periods, and it's it's representing a mindset of that time period uh, that where it, it's trying to represent a mindset. It, it's okay that some of the language feels a little stilted, that it doesn't necessarily reflect the mindset as universally as maybe uh, the writer and maybe the director thinks it does. But that said. It's still kind of refreshing to see a movie so frankly talk about sex, even now. You don't see it that often, just movies that are full of long conversations between two men, I should say, speaking about their own sexuality and how they relate to women. That said, the characters that are doing this in this movie are not the greatest guys in the world. Uh, and I think that this is something that we talked about uh, before we started recording. Part of the progression of you as a viewer watching this movie Is the recognition that these characters are kind of shitty people. And that, in fact, in some... Really shitty people, really. But but really, they are supposed to represent these two extremes of how men relate to women sexually. Where you have Jack Nicholson as this character who can only relate to women on a sexual level. That is literally all he seems to think about. There is a part of him... That I think uh, craves domesticity and the idea of the comfort of having a wife But he is so psych- psychologically screwed up that he has no way to uh, to connect those pieces together He thinks he wants certain things, but at the end of the day, the sex is all that's important to him To the point where he has this kind of growing impotence throughout the movie uh, and And almost comes off as pathetic by the time we get to the end Art Garfunkel's character, Sandy, he can only relate to women on an intellectual level, so he can't really have this uh, – anything more than uh, a kind of cleverness in the interplay that he has with women, but there doesn't seem to be any emotion attached to it. So uh, so he comes off as being this – they, they refer to him as sensitive in the movie – but his sensitivity comes in from a place where he's left wanting in all parts of his life, which is why he's unable to find a consistent relationship, and to the point where it seems like his uh, at the end the 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 happiness, if you can find that, call it that, or contentment that he's found is with an eighteen-year-old who can't possibly have any sort of intellectual stimulation for him, not to be. Disrespectful to the 18 year olds right now But someone who just doesn't have that world experience And at that point he's supposed to be someone probably What, in his uh, late 30s, early 40s um, And and it is really fascinating The way that this movie Handles the fact that it's just a series of conversations Particularly the way That it will just focus on a single character And how they react As all these conversations are happening around them. There's this wonderful scene with where Candace Bergen is sitting and just laughing at these two men who are just having a conversation completely off screen. There's another sequence later while a tennis game is going on where they do it again. And there's a sequence with Jack Nicholson where he, after ha, uh, having broken up with Candace Bergen's character, um, and in fact he'd been cheating on his best friend with her, uh, who was, uh, she was his girlfriend, it just focuses on his face as they're having this conversation about this vacation or trip that they're going on. And it's so revealing and so respective uh, or respectable or, or respecting the process of that performance that um, that it made me very hesitant to agree with the idea of this movie being... In... There's a lot of argument, and, and reasonable argument, that there's this movie has a very misogynistic edge to it, but I do think that there is insight... In all of the performances. And the fact is, the female performances that are not Carol Kane in this, and, and possibly Rita Moreno, who only shows up for a few minutes as well, that they're, these are the the Anne Margaret character and the Candace Bergen character, these are very interesting characters, even if they are sidelined as a purpose. Like they are, they are, they show up in the movie and then they are thrown out of the movie. And I think that that is an intentional message in the movie.
0: I think that uh, I agree with everything you just said. Um, I do. I do feel like the problem with Ark of Garfunkel's character uh, Sandy is more than the intellectualization of it. I-, I feel like there's something there's some suggestion that there's something else going on with him like a base selfishness mm. that is what he has in common with Jack Nicholson, you know, um, and. Both of these men are monsters. Like, like, uh, I think Jack Nicholson. We're giving more reason to see him as a as a kind of creature. But I I do think that both of these men are motivated to some extent by insecurity, self hatred. I mean, you know, the things that seem to motivate most men anyway. Yeah. And in that way, this is like one of the few kind of honest portrayals of that. I do want to push a little bit on you and say, how did you feel though about Bobby as a character? Like, if uh, there's probably a lot of places where people could level claims of misogyny on this film. And a lot of it I think is a problem because uh, I think that um, uh, depiction is not endorsement. Sure. So this is a film about misogynists. That doesn't make it a misogynist film because I think the film is really clear that these men are, are bad. However, uh, mm-hmm. I think the character of Bobby is not exactly a strong case for Mike Nichols respecting all of his female characters in this film. I don't know. What do you think?
1: I mean, I don't necessarily agree with that, uh, though I th- do think that that is based on interpretation, and one could easily interpret it that way. I mean, this is a character that is described as jo- by Jonathan, Jack Nicholson's character, as being incredibly passive. Passive to the point where she barely exists, but he pushes her in that direction, right? This is a person who right. apparently has this successful acting career, and he pr- pressures her on screen to Quit that job and basically be a homemaker. But I mean, this is—I mean, this was always the case. But certainly in the 1970s, there—that—that that isn't a comfortable position for every woman. Uh, and if there are there are women who, oh God boy, I don't want to—I <laughs> want to make sure that I verbalize this correctly. She, it, she, this is not a role that she wants. It's one that she is so passively accepting And maybe it's because there's an expectation That that is what she's supposed to be And maybe it's because there's sort of a power That Jonathan holds over her But basically she does everything he says And it's just not enough for him Right, that sequence where He asks for a beer While they're eating these kind of like These cheap microwavable Not microwavable, but like like these, these um, in, in aluminum foil Meals together on the bed and he asks for a beer, and she says that they were out of it, and then there's this kind of very realistic back and forth about whether she should go out and get it, and, and or whether he's going to go out and get it, but every time he says, I'm just going to do it, it's obviously a push for her to go do it, and I mean, it's such a power dynamic that's clearly on display here that she just gets beaten down and beaten down and beaten down to the point where I mean, she's literally suicidal, right? I mean, this is a character that gets the life sucked out of her by a man as opposed to being presented as weak, I think.
0: I think that's fair. I I, I could see that in an age, I mean, knowing how much of um, second wave feminism was about realizing your own power Mm. and about realizing your independence, seeing a character like this depicted could definitely rub people the wrong way. Again, not saying that the film was endorsing this is like this is how it is, but um I, I, you know, thinking that the that this character is playing off of certain kind of stereotypes about women and about what women are like. I think you're right though. I, I also just wonder to what extent this is a way of getting at um kind of the question of the feminine mystique, right? About like that that this She's been given not a lot of options to be. It's almost like he's mad at her uh, for doing what is available to her to do. You know, like absolutely. She, and and he's mad at her that she isn't. It's almost like he's mad that she is willing to be a housewife, and then he's also mad at her that she is not already one at the same time. And, yeah, and he craves. He craves this strange.
1: other. Like, like he he lusts after uh, uh, Sandy our Garfunkel's character, his wife. Because she ha- she absolutely stands up for herself and and defines the terms that she's uh, that her relationship has and I mean she's open to the idea of an affair but she wants it to be on her terms and she doesn't right. you know and she defines those rules directly to him but you're right Jack Nicholson he pushes Anne Mar- Margaret's character to be as passive as possible and then he it wrinkles him, it makes him upset that she's so passive, I mean, he. but he is a character of contradictions anyway, so it shouldn't be that surprising, I suppose.
0: Well, I think that's the whole uh, sort of uh, through line of, of his life, right? Like that he calls these women ballbusters when he boils them down just to the way that they've uh, serviced him. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in his very first relationship, with, you see with Candace Bergen, that he sexualizes her. He pushes her into an illicit relationship with him, and then has the cojones Mm -hmm. to be emotional and jealous about her actual relationship. It's like you're the one who's trying to uh, basically cuckold your best friend and then you're going to get sad and clingy with with (laughs) this poor woman? It's it's, uh, a delicious... Uh, contradiction, because it is, I think, instructive of who men are. I wonder, though, this is the other place at which I want to continue to make you defend this movie from our straw person of a of an accuser. Um, but this movie is very much about the men, and and we talked about uh, a little bit about the idea that the movie focuses on listeners more than speakers in a sense, and yet. It is the lives of the men to which we are focused more than anything. And what we get of these men is a little bit of nuance and a little bit of character. And is that part of the problem of the film? That the, that the most um, explored lives are of these two, in my opinion, noxious misogynists. And the response to the film would be different if there was more focus on female characters.
1: You know, this movie started out as a play. Uh, and right. it, when you watch it, you can kind of tell that it that it did, even though it's very cinematic yes. and it, it uses a lot of really interesting st- stylistic tricks uh, to make it you know to make you forget about the fact that it's really just a series of conversations. Um, and I think in a form as a play, that you would be maybe a little more open to the idea that these characters that are the main characters. Are not heroes simply because they're the main characters. You know, in this conversation that's on YouTube that you can watch between Mike Nichols and Jason Reitman from the Lincoln Center, and it's a really interesting conversation, particularly because it's only a couple of years before Mike Nichols passes away. He, he but he very has like a uh, he, he speaks very intelligently about his work. And they're speaking specifically about this movie. He refers to it as a movie about the listener and not the talker. And that, I think, is very revealing. Of course, that's something that you could say in retrospect if you did get a lot of of blowback when the movie was released. If you watch this movie thinking that you're supposed to relate directly with Jack Nicholson and Art Garfunkel in it, then I can absolutely understand why you'd come away thinking that That we're supposed to agree with the things that they're saying and that it's a misogynistic movie. And I do think that there's a lot of... uh, there's, There's something very valid in that because most movies are presented that way. However, I do think that our reaction to what they're saying is more important than what they're saying in some ways when watching this movie. And that what we're supposed to take away from it, especially in its progression, is that these are characters that are incredibly unhappy because they have boiled relationships down to these very base levels and because they don't have a way to relate to women on a deeper level and at the end you know how can you how can you celebrate these characters that have made themselves unhappy and you know it'd be different at the end. We thought that Art Garfunkel going away with his eighteen-year-old girlfriend had really found something of substance in his life, or Jack Nicholson right. getting, um, you know, a hand job from a uh, a prostitute who's who's got to pump him up with words simply to help him get an erection. If he's happy with his life, but these are broken men who have broken themselves.
0: But I think that the. The criticism to keep in mind, and 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 I think this comes a little bit from, um, in that interview that Doug just referenced, uh, Mike Nichols talks about Pauline Kael's response, and and mm-hmm. she accused the film of like sort of functioning like a like a a movie a neon sign about the dangers of neon. You know what I mean? Right. Um. And but in her uh review, she also sort of suggested that the film doesn't allow any space for um. Healthy sexual relationships, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 that in a way by picking this particular time uh, to develop these men, you know, we see them starting in the forties, and then we sort of see their lives develop through the tumultuous fifties, sixties, seventies, sort of ending in nineteen seventy whatever one, probably when the film comes out, basically is when it's supposed to right. end. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a time of great sexual freedom and in what ways does it feel like the film is conflating the monstrosity of these men the sexism of these men with sexual freedom with the sudden freedom to treat women as objects that was harder to do at a time when mores were more restrictive i don't know what do you what do you think about that
1: i mean i think there's something to be said except they seemed more content in their lives before this was something that was pushing back at them, right? When true, when when true. when Jack Nicholson said, "Yeah," you know, there's a part in it where he's talking to our Garfunkel, and he's mentioning that he's only sleeping with like what 12 women a month or something like that. Like that that the idea is that that number is starting to shrink, and he doesn't know why that is. But I mean th- that maybe he's becoming more selective or something like that. And even the fact that it kind of the whole movie culminates in this outrageous slideshow of his sexual history but this is almost like a football player showing highlights of their football career right when after they're retired this this is a guy who's looking back on something with fondness because what he has now is left him so cold uh and the, maybe there's a suggestion that the kind of attitudes that these men have that that are inherent in a lot of men still and at that time are things that maybe Should be snuffed out Maybe they are being snuffed out By what is occurring uh, By counterculture By the the suggestions of of feminism in the 1970s And how the direction that that's moving in But I don't know that for sure But all, all I can really take away from the movie Is that these are not characters That are content with what life is like In the early 70s And up to that point They're shown as being unpleasant and gross So maybe they deserve to be unhappy
0: yeah, I gotta agree with you on that. I' sorry to keep putting you on the spot there, Doug, but I just want to. It's not to no. Hey, I like
1: it. I I want you to push back. I wish yeah. we actually we had. Uh, uh, I really wish that we had a female voice here in this particular discussion because True. it seems, because there was a lot of pushback, and I think that the pushback, understanding that this was a movie that was breaking down all sorts of barriers in terms of how. The speech uh, is presented on film And the sort of words that were being used I mean, this is the first movie to ever use The C word on film And, you know, that is a genderized Slur, right? I mean, that is directed At women, and who knows How many more people used it because they saw it in this movie That sort of thing, right? But it is interesting that this movie was so controversial at the time That it was it was seen as almost how – and it's it's unbelievable that we can even make this comparison. It was seen how Deep Throat would have been seen three years later where people sighed just to see it because everyone was talking about it. It was this, like, water cooler type movie. It's like, did you see this frank, explicit movie? But when you watch it now, yeah, it's it's explicit. But, I mean, you can see as explicit a speech in probably a Judd Apatow comedy.
0: Yeah, the controversy of it all seems strange now. But I I will say I'm not – entirely surprised by the um by the misogyny of it in the sense of like that people would see this even now and be like what am I supposed to get from this and I think um I really do take Mike Nichols at his word about what the intention is of the story and about showing a certain kind of man um and and a man who uh has a unique sort of space with within this time period that uh these men are kind of riding this change in sexual mores just at the time when they're getting bored and they're married. You know what I mean? Like right. it, it it's sort of like that the point at which Art Garfunkel is ready to get divorced and move on, it's becoming easier to do that. You know it's 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 like his own uh shitty being coincides with society making it easier for him to be shitty in certain ways i At mean i mean the fact that that makes
1: are... sense right of course the world would bend to what men want since men control the world
0: interesting because it's it's it, it, just having that documented i think is interesting but I, but i'm not surprised that like uh, if anything it seems to me i i think the movie really is uh showing the problem with patriarchy and the problem with misogyny, like, I don't think it's like endorsing these men at all. But I do think the method of telling that through the men themselves, right. it's the same way that like if you are telling the story of racism focused almost solely on mm. these really dynamic, well-performed, nuanced white racists. Right, that some folks might find that not a sufficient way to tell that story. Um, and and I think in the end, this movie kind of worked for me, but it 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 almost uh worked in the midst of it of its unpleasantness. It's an right. unpleasant experience,
1: yeah, yeah. And it, 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 I think that's very fair. Uh, and I do think I do want to spend a little time talking about the performances and not just definitely the men at its core, but I mean, I do think that there these are such strong performances all the way around that it almost works against what the movie is trying to say because it's hard not to watch jack nicholson and maybe that's something that that not everyone feels but when i see him it's hard not to be attracted to him as a person i don't mean necessarily physically but i mean just he's such a a dynamic performer and this is him really just like you can see how he became one of the biggest stars in the world Within a couple of years after this He just dominates the screen so entirely But that's also what the character is supposed to be Someone who uses their charisma To get what he wants in all facets of his life um, and, and he plays it Exactly like it should be played But it's also it. I think that there is something inherent In a lot of men And I know it's within myself Where it's hard not to idolize A person who presents himself to the world In that way um, and because of that that charisma that he's displaying I can see how it would make it all the more difficult to, to recognize that this character is actually a monster And a terrible person And not someone we're meant to idolize at all It also, this movie, has sort of a Hollywood vision Of what men are like uh, In the sense that they because we are cherry picking these conversations throughout a, like a 30 year or however long period it's we're, it becomes a little hard to swallow that this is the this is the entirety of Jack Nicholson and Arthur Funkel's relationship with those with each other and these characters that that whenever they're together they're just talking about the size of a woman's breasts and they're just talking about sex, you know, but it's been kind of filtered down to these conversations, so it seems like that is all that they are about, which because this is a movie and it it's presenting these characters a certain way and we're supposed to take something away from it, that's fair, but it means that no one comes out of this movie feeling very three-dimensional, and if anybody comes out as being more dimensional, it's probably the female characters, but that doesn't take away with what you're saying, Liam. You're right. The idea of making a movie that is at its core about misogyny and then putting men front and center, there's something a bit perverse about that.
0: Well, I think it's... But I think that's part of the point of the movie. Like For me, the reason it works is because I like how perverse it is, and I like that um, the film really does show you jack nicholson is pathetic like as charming as he is and as much as you see him charm people there are just these really pointed moments where he is a pathetic pathetic human and uh i like that i like that i think it works uh and you're right his performance is pretty magnetic can we talk though about his counterpart art garfunkel how did you feel about his performance in this movie
1: so i don't know much about art garfunkel as a performer Former outside of his music uh, Aside from his performance in Catch-22 Which I love Mike Nichols' Catch-22 And I love the book Catch-22 And I know it's not a, it's it's a I think it's a great movie While not being a great adaptation Which so, does happen uh, <laughs> Oddly uh, Every once in a while um, But I really like that movie And I think Art Arfunkel, Who doesn't have as large of a part in that As he does here Is really good in it I think he's actually like, really good Like to the point where you know you are stacking him up against an actor that a lot of people would consider one of the great actors, American actors of all time, who's Jack Nicholson, and I think he holds with him every step of the way. He's playing his opposite in a lot of ways, and 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 you know intentionally so. He is meant to be a quote unquote more sensitive character, but the fact that he can be, you know. There's, this movie starts with both of these characters in college, which is entirely unbelievable. These are actors who are in their 30s. There's no way you could believe it. Except Harkar Funkel is kind of believable because he has a little bit of that kind of baby faceness to it. And, and uh, the sensitivity, again, that word, in his face really comes off as being this youthful thing. And again, I do think it, it actually uh, works against, not the movie, but in terms of people uh, seeing what these characters are supposed to be... I think it's easy to go through this movie And and come out the other end with Oh, Jack Nicholson was the bad guy And Art Garfunkel was the good guy But that's not the case at all They're just bad in different ways and uh and he's covering it up by the fact that he has this kind of like soft little to his voice that he isn't as harsh a, p- a performer as Jack Nicholson but I think it's just as nuanced and just as interesting really I the the, the two performances I came out of this most impressed with is Art funkel and, and and Margaret who is someone I didn't really ever see as a great actress but here I think she's amazing
0: well I'm gonna um I'm gonna have to agree with you on that although uh I will say I really prefer Uh, I really appreciate his performance. Unlike Jack Nicholson, I find him so unsettling. Right? Um, He makes me uncomfortable the whole movie. Everything he does makes me just want to yell at him. (laughs) Uh, And I know that that's the strength of his performance, quote unquote, but it's also like uh, strong casting because he's supposed to be a a creep. And uh, I suspect Art Garfunkel was a creep. I'm just going to put that out there. (laughs) Because that's how it felt to me. It felt like, oh, this is a little too good. But let's let's pivot, though, to, to Anne-Margaret, because I want to agree, like, that, that is a role, that is a demanding role to play and a, mm-hmm. and a complicated role to play. And I think she shines in that role. I think she really brings something to the film. And I think the nuance of her performance is part of the reason this entire movie works
1: in on any level. It's an amazing casting, too, because when she shows up in the movie, she's playing the what I always envision as the Anne Margaret role, as like this sex kitten, you know, this this absolute bomb of a of a woman who, who is almost like supernaturally beautiful, right? I mean she's unbelievably attractive. And she's presented as that as this uh goal for Jack Nicholson in it. And then he starts to break her down. And then you have to see her break down in stages and it happens very quickly, but it it even though it happens quickly on screen, it's believable that, you know, they, ha- they have this kind of passionate love affair Where they have this, uh, almost like a combatively sexual relationship Where there's, you know, playful in a lot of ways But but clever in the way that they interact with one another But then the we see, you know, uh, Jack Nicholson's jealousy Over the fact that she's on the phone all the time Even though he has demanded that she stay home So he wants her to stay home and to... You know, to clean and to be available to him at all times via the phone, and to be available to all time at all times for him sexually, and that he does not want a human being, right? He just wants a, <laughs> a a robot maid that's also a sex doll, that sort of thing. Um And we see that this is a person who has all this strength when she's first introduced, and it's just broken down piece by piece by piece to the point where she's just a shell at the end. To the point where he's he. He tells Art Garfunkel, so there's a part near the end of this movie where he introduces the idea of wife swapping with Art Garfunkel. And Art Garfunkel is open to that idea, but he doesn't even say anything to Anne Margaret's character. He just sends Art Garfunkel in there with the idea that she's so passive that she's just going to accept it. That's how broken down she is, and we discover that it's even further down from that where she's basically tried to commit suicide.
0: Yeah, I think that that is not an easy thing to do. She's unbelievably impressive. I also want to lift up uh, Candice Bergen mm-hmm. because I think that early role, she she somehow... She has to be believable in her... Uh, in the idea that she could be manipulated uh, by Jack Nicholson's character in that sort of early uh, uh, performance. And yet still has some of her own dignity and charm. And, and, and you really believe that she cares for Art Garfunkel's character, even as I don't think she really loves, like I, right. I, I don't get the feeling that either of them are actually passionate for each other. They're just comfortable. And she's, uh feels sorry for him. A lot of the time when she uh, engages Art Garfunkel in any sort of physical thing, she's just moved by his being pathetic, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and that's it's real creepy, but it it really works for the role. And and she's unbelievable in it. It, I was super
1: impressed by her. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really great performance as well. It's a really difficult one. I mean, I I guess all the performances in this movie, uh, there's there's not really an easy one. But I mean, this is a case where, yeah, she she has to remain likable despite doing something that I think a lot of people watching this would would see as almost unforgivable. But, you know, I, she is shown as being so intelligent Intelligent to the point where I think it actually uh, is meant to You know, it, it's it, she even mentions that some men find it very intimidating But after saying that, you might That m- might make a viewer be like, oh yeah, she's not so smart But she comes off as clever and fun And I tell you, that sequence at, I guess, a bar or wherever it is Where it just holds on her face while these jokes are being said around her and she, and, and And it's this amazing, and she's so... Alive and so happy and laughing so, you know, genuinely in that sequence. I mean, it's, it, it, I will say that if I wanted to push back at this view of misogyny, I think that's one of the sequences I'd, I'd go to in regards to it simply because, right, w- would a movie that hates women give you that moment? And uh, again, I'm not, I don't want to dismiss all feelings of misogyny in this. I do think there's an interpretation that you can come away from this. That's very valid that there, especially because the characters use that language in such a violent way. But, but that sequence is there specifically to show that this character is more than just a, uh, a vessel for these men to, to project their feelings on.
0: I agree. I think it, it, it really adds, it's a great way to start the film out because uh, if we were focused just on them at this point, they're so unlikable. She really adds something that makes you want to keep watching. Uh, I guess it'd be a good time to turn towards Carol Kane's performance, <laughs> though I'm not sure what we're gonna have to say about that.
1: Well, I mean, we've put it in context, right? Which is that the it, this movie is about these these male characters and their relationship, and also the relationships that they have with women. And for for Art Carfunkel's character, this starts with his uh, first sexual experiences, which is with Candace Bergen's character, and then it presents. Uh, sorry, it, they they end up getting married, later divorced Though we a lot of this happens off screen, he starts another relationship, um, and uh, then breaks up with that person after years and years. And at the end of the movie, uh, I mentioned before, Jack Nicholson basically sits down, <laughs> Art Carfunkel, and his new girlfriend. And shows them a slideshow, like a literal slideshow of his sexual history um, And and isn't very pleasant as he's doing it Not that I don't know if there is a way to make that very pleasant And Carol Kane is just sitting there watching it as this 18-year-old girlfriend of this 40-year-old man And her response, which I think is a pretty reasonable one, is basically just to walk out in silence And that is pretty much the entirety of... Of the character that we get presented on screen I don't know if she's necessarily supposed to be reflective Of a of a more progressive woman Of a 1970s style woman a uh, Style woman, maybe style isn't the right word there But as a woman who has been raised In a culture that could push back harder That has that ability That maybe has uh, a um, societal strength That she can feel like she can dismiss Or, uh, or rebel against the... the such a clearly gross and misogynistic idea as someone basically forcing you to see their sexual history.
0: Yeah. I, um, she's very important, but I, you know, we don't get much of her, especially uh, since she doesn't have many lines by many. I mean, she doesn't have any lines. It's very hard to appreciate, um, that aspect of, of the film, it's still a great movie. I actually really am glad that we covered it. I very much uh, appreciated it. I, I, I don't know if I would say I enjoyed all of it, but that's sort of the point. Um, but it is hard for us to make any sort of determination about her performance other than to say she is important in that scene. She she What I, what I love about that part of the film is that it shows the gulf between these two men without giving us the false idea that art garfunkel has become a good person right (laughs) so they are very different people now and yet that doesn't mean that he's somehow you know uh uh transcended where jack nicholson is at they're both still jerk-offs
1: yeah i think it's a really interesting uh, the fact is there's only what six roles in this movie i mean that this is a right which is why you can kind of tell that it's um, it, it started out as a play Even though that play was never actually put on But so the fact that Carol Kane is in this movie Is still symbolic of the fact that she uh, Was someone seen as a very capable And uh, an actress that was moving In in a an important direction in her career Because otherwise she wouldn't even have been given this small role Because it could go to almost anyone But uh, though it's hard to praise her performance Because there isn't much here Um, It's still an important character, as you said
0: Well, Doug It it mostly just has me excited To keep going on our journey Because I want to see some larger Carol Kane roles Uh, I don't know how how you feel, but that's how I'm feeling about it
1: Well, I mean, it makes me excited Also for the rest of this decade of films I mean, it's amazing to think Her second movie was this movie A very, you know, a a seminal movie In 1970s cinema And we're going to get a few more of those Just in the next... You know, the next handful of episodes of this
0: What are we going to be covering next on this very show? Oh, I'm
1: so excited, Liam Because we're moving to Canada Yes, my home country of Canada Where we're going to be watching a movie called Wedding in White Now, this is not a movie that I know anything about Outside of the fact that it was directed by William Fruitt Who actually went on to make uh, sort of like horror-ish films in Canada In the 1980s, including Spasms, Killer Party, and Blue Monkey It stars... Donald Pleasance, and co-stars Carol Kane. I think we're going to get a lot more Carol Kane content in this movie. Um, It sounds like a very interesting drama. Not sure uh, what to expect, to be totally honest with you, uh, simply because it is not a movie that is spoken about, certainly compared to Carnal Knowledge. But yeah, on the next episode of Praising Kane, we're going to be watching 1972's Wedding in White.
0: Very excited about that, Doug. I'm very excited. Uh, If people have enjoyed... This show, we'd love it if you would uh, rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, And if you want some more information about the project that is Cinema Smorgasbord, a grand family of film podcast topics related to each other, you can go over to cinepunks.com or to cinemasmorgasbord.com. You can follow Cinema Smorgasbord on Twitter, cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. Uh, Doug, where can people go if they want to follow you?
1: On Twitter? Well, they can find me at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And Liam, they can also find you on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z.
0: Seems like a bad idea, but they sure can do that. They, of course, want to hear more about other podcasts in the CinePunks podcast family. Uh, Not only can they go to CinePunks.com, P-U-N-X, they can also follow CinePunks on Twitter. Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, probably on TikTok soon. We'll see. Uh, we're working on it. We'll see. I don't know why you would want to do that, but sure. So why
1: not? Just highlights, right? Again, if you want yeah. to support Cinema Board and its various podcasts, you can uh, always write us reviews on iTunes. Believe us, uh, it helps. And rate, of course, on iTunes. It helps us very, very much. And if you have any feedback, particularly over some of the controversial content that Liam said in this episode, you can certainly give it to us. Uh, you could, there's an email link at the top of the Cinema Smorgasbord dot site or just uh, send it to us through social media Liam we love hearing feedback
0: the point is we really appreciate you for listening we hope you're keeping safe out there we hope you continue to make your voice heard but also uh, keep an eye out and protect yourself and your family and we hope you'll come back next time
1: and black lives matter
0: they sure as fuck do night (laughs) y'all